mystery tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 29th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And today, we're going to talk about the life and the afterlife of a great author, Mark Twain. I'm looking forward to this, Denise. I've always been a big fan of Mark Twain. I have right next to my Edgar Allan Poe anthology is my Mark Twain anthology with almost everything he ever wrote. It doesn't have everything because I got this years ago and they have still been making discoveries of Mark Twain's writings up until a few years ago. Oh, wow. Have you read the whole thing? <laughs> no, I have not read everything that he Busted. wrote. <laughs> I've read all the highlights, shall we say. <laughs> the bridge, or bridge notes or whatever <laughs> those things are. The one thing that I didn't really know was a whole lot about Mark Twain. You know, when you ask most people about Mark Twain, What's the first thing you think about when somebody says Mark Twain to you? You kind of think of the the South, the Bayou, just kind of writing, you know, in um, that easy kind of life. That's one thing I usually, you know, you think Tom Sawyer. Mm-hmm. The other thing is Huck about Finn. him personally. What do you think about him personally? Look like Colonel Sanders, only a little bit shaggier. <laughs> <laughs> a mix between Colonel Sanders and Einstein. <laughs> what more are you looking for? He, I guess, yeah, I guess you're right a little bit. I mean, Colonel Sanders has the goatee thing going. When I think of Mark Twain personally, I think wild hair and big mustache. But there's a lot more to this man. A lot of people probably think, oh, he was, <laughs> okay, so I'm going for, he was an author. I think of the South. And you're like, big bushy mustache and wild hair. <laughs> See, you're being too academic for me. I was going for less academic. <laughs> So I guess we just had a body switch for a minute. I know, because that's generally, I should be the academic one, not you. <laughs> but as we're going to find tonight, as we share with people, a lot of people may not know, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a lot of his stuff from a very dark place. Well, Mark Twain knows that dark place too. And he wrote some stuff that goes along those lines as well. So we're going to find out this man is so much more than just who we might think is some jovial guy telling stories about life along the Mississippi. And even more than the guy talking to Benjamin Franklin and the American Adventure? That is true, too. Which, as we said in the last podcast, I don't know how they put those two men together, but hey, it works for Disney. Yep. And you know I had to get a Disney quip in there. Somehow. Exactly. (laughs) Of course, before we get into that, we want to make sure that you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. Everything you could want to know about the show is there. For those of you who've been listening to the last 28 podcasts and specials, you already know the rhetoric. You can donate to the show there. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can also find out where to listen to us on uh, different podcast catchers and check us out on different social media places. We've gotten a lot of new likes for the uh, History Goes Bump page over at Facebook. Thank you so much for liking us there. Please join us at the Spooktacular Crew group page as well. We'd love to have more of you there. I'm the only one posting. I need to get more of you guys uh, posting with me. I'm, I feel like I'm talking to myself over there. Gulp. Yeah, that I means Denise isn't posting my, either. I read it all the time, though. 
So, uh, and it doesn't just have to be like history and haunting stuff. It can be other things too. It's just a social place for us to interact with each other. So feel free to post what you want. And I know a lot of you are talented and do your own thing out there. Please feel free to share, or, you know, if you're doing podcasts or writing or artwork, something of that nature, feel free to share that with everybody. Um, I know that uh, we hadn't seen much from Carbon Lilies lately. And I was kind of wondering, huh, I hope everything's okay over there. And apparently the uh, female part of Carbon Lilies... <laughs> Okay, best way I, I wonder if we it. should tell the children to cover their ears and leave the room. <laughs> no, but she was in a car accident, so oh. uh, we were sorry to hear that. And I, it sounds like she's starting a new job and moving and all this stuff. So we're glad to hear that she uh, is okay after the car accident oh, and getting back into the swing of stuff. And so we look forward to more interactions there as well. And we've been getting a lot of new likes over at the other page that I have set up where history lies. I've gotten like eight in the past week and a half. Oh, that's fantastic. So I guess I better start doing more over there, too. I'd kind of been letting that hang over on the side when I started moving on with this new endeavor. But lots of great uh, cemetery stuff over there. So if you have stuff to share about cemeteries and things, that's a great place to uh, let us know about that as well. Now, of course, Denise, we love to hear from our listeners and where can they send us feedback or let us know what kind of show they want to listen to maybe in the future if they've got a place they'd like to hear about. Um, so they can simply do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. All right. Well, I think we are ready to get into this. Yes, we are. <laughs> like to support the show please visit our patreon page at patreon.com forward slash history goes bump or perhaps you just want to make a one-time donation click the donate button on our website at historygoesbump.com A snake that originates in Iran has a unique design for its tail. The tip of the spider-tailed horned viper's tail resembles exactly what its name indicates, a spider. The end of the tail is shaped like a cream or gray-colored bulb, and the scales that are near the end of the tail are long and thin and branch out, resembling little legs. A single spider-tailed horned viper was first discovered in the 60s, and biologists thought that it was a defect in the snake until more were found later and it was classified as its own species when it was formally described in 2006. The snake uses the arachnid-shaped tail much like a fishing lure. It shakes the end of its tail so that any creatures that like to feed on insects will be lured close enough that the viper can strike. Victims include rodents and birds. The viper is the master of disguise as well. Its entire body is bumpy and colored like the surrounding terrain in sand and brown colors. This includes the snake's eyes. Snakes and spiders are creepy enough on their own. Combine the two and you have one terrifying oddity. In southern Peru lies a small volcano named Huayna Putina with a big history. 
On this day, February 19th in 1600, this volcano exploded in the most violent eruption of any volcano recorded in South America. Huayna Patina is unique in that it does not rise high in elevation like most volcanoes, which resemble mountains. This volcano is located inside a caldera that was formed by a glacier. Because of the way it was formed, no one knew that it was a volcano. It was described as a ridge by those who saw it. That all changed when it erupted in an explosion that is considered one of the largest in the last 2,000 years. It has been compared to the 1883 eruption of Krakatoa. Within 24 hours, the nearby city of Araguipa was covered in 10 inches of ash. Pumice and asphalt covered areas up to 310 miles away. Lava flows traveled for 8 miles to the east, and hot mud flows made it all the way to the Pacific Ocean, 75 miles away. The eruptions continued on into March, and people compared the sounds of the explosions to cannon fire. The indigenous people of the area blamed the eruption on their lack of sacrifice. They had once sacrificed humans and animals to appease the gods, and they believed this eruption was their punishment for converting to Catholicism. When the volcano finally calmed, 1,500 people had been killed. It took agriculture 150 years to recover. Hey, this is Christopher. And this is Joe. From the Curioso Podcast. And here at the Curioso, when we want to listen to ghost tours for the theater of the mind, we listen to the History Goes Bump Podcast. Mark Twain authored some of the most beloved stories in American literature. Everyone knows the story of Tom Sawyer, his buddy Huck Finn, and about whitewashing wood fences. Not many people know the details of the life of Mark Twain, though. Twain's life was one of literary genius, but it was also one of financial ruin and immense pain when it came to his family life. The Twains owned a home in Hartford, Connecticut, and Twain claimed that the years that he and his family lived in the Hartford home were the happiest years of his life. They would eventually move from the home, but did their spirits actually leave the home? Twain was a lifelong skeptic, but is he now a true believer as his spirit continues to roam on the side of the veil? Samuel Langhorn Clemens was born in Florida, Missouri on November 30th, 1835. Samuel was number six of seven children born to John and Jane Marshall Clemens. Only four of the Clemens children survived into adulthood. John Clemens himself died from pneumonia when Samuel was 12 years old. John Clemens was a lawyer and a judge, and he moved his family to Hannibal, Missouri when Samuel was four. Hannibal was a growing port city in 1839, and the setting would provide inspiration for Samuel's future writing. Childhood was tough for Samuel. Not only did three of his siblings die, but he was a sickly child who was mostly kept inside until he was nine years old. He would visit his uncle's farm in the summers and spend hours at the slave quarters listening to their tales and songs. After his father's death, Samuel decided he was done with school, and he dropped out taking a job as a printer's apprentice. The printing business proved to be a good fit for Samuel, and when he was 15, he joined the paper his brother Orion owned, the Hannibal Journal, and he served as a printer and an editorial assistant there. He started contributing articles and bits of humor to the paper and found that he enjoyed writing. 
Samuel decided he wanted to see the world and have adventure when he was 18. He headed east and found work as a printer at several newspapers in New York and Philadelphia. In the evening, Samuel would go to the libraries where he would educate himself and study subjects he would have never had an opportunity to study when he was in school. As a boy, Samuel and his friends had discussed and dreamed about becoming steamship captains and pilots. Steamboat pilots made a lot of money. Following those dreams, Samuel headed back to Missouri in 1857. In St. Louis, Samuel became an apprentice to steamboat pilot Horace E. Bixby and learned how to steer a steamboat on a course that went from St. Louis to New Orleans. Samuel learned the intricacies of the Mississippi River, another skill that would contribute to his future writings. He also acquired his pen name at this time using lingo from the steamboat industry. The term Mark Twain meant that the river's depth was two fathoms or 12 feet. Steamboats needed at least two fathoms of depth to keep clear of the river bottom. Samuel liked the term, but he would not use the pseudonym until 1861. Samuel invited his younger brother Henry to join him as he trained, and Henry accepted. It would be something Samuel would regret the rest of his life. On June 21, 1858, the steamboat Henry was working aboard exploded, and he was killed. Samuel would always feel responsible for the death, but he finished his training, and he received his pilot license in 1859, and then the Civil War started. Traffic along the Mississippi was impeded by the war, and Samuel decided to join the fight and enlisted with a Confederate unit called the Marion Rangers. The experience only lasted two weeks. Samuel wrote an article about it called The Private History of a Campaign That Failed. He went out to Nevada to work for his brother Orion again, who now was Secretary of the Nevada Territory. The trip was an adventure. Samuel traveled by stagecoach, met Native Americans along the way, and made a stop in the Mormon community in Salt Lake City. He wrote a book of short stories named Roughing It that detailed the trip. Silver mining was hot in Nevada, and Samuel even tried his hand at silver prospecting, but he failed horribly and went back to writing, taking a job at the Virginia City Territorial Enterprise. It was at this time that he started using the name Mark Twain. It's just amazing. I had no idea that he had done all this stuff. I just assumed he'd worked for newspapers and became a writer, and that was it. Yeah, and I mean, and that he went all the way out west because so much, you know, when I started saying the bayou and stuff, I'm like, where did I get that? If he was up in Missouri, but the Mississippi and coming down and then going going into New Orleans, that's what you sense of him as the the boats, the river, you know, sitting there smoking a pipe, possibly with friends, mm-hmm. you know, that's not not out trying to get his riches and silver. I I never look at that. Well, and the thing that you're getting here too is, boy, did he travel a lot. I mean, he's in his early 20s and he's already been all the way east to Philadelphia and New York. And now he's already been all the way west to Nevada. And during those times, it wasn't like you just bought a ticket and flew an unaccompanied (laughs) minor, you know, now it's so much easier. Back then, it like he went by stagecoach. I mean, much, much simpler than what we do today. Well, and I think people are getting a feel, too. When he was writing his stories, it wasn't just stuff that he was pulling out of his head. He was writing about his experiences, basically. Exactly. And I think that's why people really loved his writing, especially at that time. Because if you think, they didn't have a chance to get out and get around and see all these things. So all these adventures that he was going on and sharing with people, they got to go on the adventures with him. In 1864, Twain continued west, stopping in San Francisco and wrote for a paper there. And hopefully we're not going to confuse you too much. I was using his name Samuel before he was using his pseudonym Mark Twain, just to keep it so that the biography was along 
with what his name was or what he went by. So now we're going to switch over to Mark Twain because he started using that now. By the next year, he had a piece that made it into many of the magazines and the papers in the nation entitled Jim Smiley and His Jumping Frog. The short story was a tall tale about a gambler named Jim Smiley. The plot features a bet over a frog jumping contest. Based on that success, the Sacramento Union hired Twain to go to the Sandwich Islands and report on them. And for those of you who'd listened to an earlier broadcast, you know, or if you already know your geographical history, the Sandwich Islands are the Hawaiian Islands. But at this time, this is what they were called. His stories were widely followed. And when he returned to the continental U.S., he embarked on a lecture tour where his knack for stage performing was demonstrated. So now you've seen he went so far west, he was in Hawaii. That. Yeah, I definitely, until we started looking into this episode, I would have never, ever thought. I just assumed he always stayed on this part, of this side of the United <laughs> States. So, huh. His travel writing continued to the east, and after arriving in New York, Twain set off for Europe and the Holy Land. The stories he wrote as he traveled were later compiled into his book, The Innocents Abroad. That was published in 1869. While he was traveling, he met Charles Langdon. The two men shared stories, and Charles showed Twain a picture of his sister Olivia. It was love at first sight for Twain. Twain started writing Olivia, and he asked her to marry him. She refused. He asked again a couple months later, and she agreed. They married in 1870. They settled in Buffalo, New York, where Twain was writing for and editing the Buffalo Express. So that's quite quite the love at first sight. He didn't even actually see her. <laughs> he it saw was a picture. picture. <laughs> While in Buffalo, Langdon Clemens was born. Twain and Livy decided to move to Hartford, Connecticut, and they rented a home there. Twain wanted to be closer to his publisher, and at the time, Hartford was the city that had the highest per capita income in America. I would have never thought, I mean, Hartford, Connecticut, really? (laughs) That's where all the rich people lived, I guess. Twain described Hartford as, quote, of all the beautiful towns it has been my fortune to see, this is the chief. You do not know what beauty is if you have not been here, end quote. Tragedy would strike again for Twain as two-year-old Langdon came down with diphtheria. The disease killed the boy. But there was a light at that time as well when their daughter Susie was born. Twain published his novel, The Gilded Age, in 1873. The book was a social commentary on corruption and greed. In 1874, the Clemenses moved into a beautiful 25-room mansion they had built on Farmington Avenue. This home would see Twain's greatest successes and more tragedy. That would be so hard to lose a child. I can't even imagine. Well, and you know, this was the thing at the time, as we know, as we've gone through cemeteries... It it can be so tragic, as you see, you know, the four children all buried in under the same tombstone. Right, and they're all, like, young. I mean, it's not like, you know, the four no. children that live to the ripe old ages. It's like, this one died at two months old, and this one died at four months old, and this one was a year old. It's just like... Yeah, even even with his own family. I mean, there were seven of them, and... Only three made it into adulthood? No, four of them made it in. So three of them died as young and this was the norm i think this is why they had more children back then not only did you need more hands on the farm but you just it was like rolling the dice how many of these kids are actually going to become adults because there was just so much disease back then Mm -hmm. that they didn't have anything a cure for the mark twain house was designed by architect edward tuckerman potter from new york construction began in 1873 while the clemenses were traveling abroad and the project was plagued by delays and ever-rising costs When the family moved into the house in 1874, the construction was not yet finished. Daughter Clara was born that same year. The style of the home is Victorian Gothic Revival. It truly is a beautifully designed home, and Livy played a big role in the design. 
Some claimed that the house was designed to look like a riverboat. The decor reflected the family's world travels with inspiration from Japan, India, Morocco, China, and Turkey. The top floor of the home was a billiards room and a private office where Twain did his writing and cursing. The library had embossed wallpaper, hand-stenciled paneling, fireplaces from India, and a large handcrafted mantle from Scotland. The children had their own nursery and playroom and a classroom where Livy taught the children. This was on the second floor along with the master bedroom. The entrance hall is ornate with a large wraparound staircase. The area features carved wood on the ceiling, wall paneling, and banisters. In 1880, in 1880, Dadder Jean was born. In 1881, following the success of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, which had been published in 1876, Twain decided to renovate and expand the home. The kitchen was rebuilt and doubled in size. A phone was added in the entrance hall, and it was enlarged. The driveway was redone, and the grounds were re-landscaped. And this phone was the thing to have back then. I mean, this was high technology for them to have that phone in the house, so he was very proud of them having that in the home. The reason why I threw that little cursing part in there, writing and cursing, Mark Twain always said a man should have somewhere where he'd go to curse. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> so that was where he could say whatever he wanted to say and didn't have to worry. It's also where the men would all retire. You know, they'd go smoke their cigars and drink their uh, liqueur or whatever, mm-hmm. their cognac and visit. And so that was where he would host everything. That was off limits to everyone except for the cleaning staff. They were the only ones allowed in that room. Oh, Now, of course, you can tour it and everybody can see it. But at the time, even the family was not allowed in that room. Okay, so is the History Ghost Bump studio your cursing room? <laughs> I tell you, when technology starts going haywire, there's uh, definitely As some so cursing that goes my on in here. co-host language. <laughs> <laughs> if I start throwing around the F word, you know I'm mad. Yeah, just put some technology in front of the kid, and I'm always like, calm down, you always figure it out. I'm not going to figure it out this time. I'm still trying to figure out how to get all this to work with Skype and everything. Eventually, when I get this figured out and we've got it working correctly and it's still, you know, it does a really good production, we'll start getting some other people on here who have a little bit more knowledge specifically about the various locations. But until I get to that point, it's you and me, baby. That's right. I haven't heard any complaints, so I think we're doing all right. Just you and me and occasionally mom thrown in there. Twain wrote most of the works he's known for while living in this house. Out of this home came The Gilded Age, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, Life on the Mississippi, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. That was the original name of it. Later on, it was called The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. He also started investing at this time, and many of those investments would bring him to financial ruin. The typesetting machine that was invented by James W. Page seemed like a great idea. So Twain invested heavily. Unfortunately, the linotype machine was invented at the same time by Whitlaw Reed, and it proved to be a superior machine since the typesetter never worked properly. Twain also formed the Charles L. Webster and Company publishing firm. And this is who's going to publish most of his books. Its first book that it published was The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. The company went bankrupt. Bank panics like the Panic of 1893 did not help either. And by 1891, the Clemenses were looking for a way to get away. They decided to move to Europe. Doesn't seem like a cheap endeavor. So I'm thinking it wasn't just a matter of we want to move somewhere for cheaper living. I have a feeling that maybe some of their debts were chasing them down and they needed to get away. (laughs) I I mean, I can't understand why you... Oh, Europe's going to be so much better than us just staying right here. Yep. Good old geographical changes. But you know, back in those days too, it's almost like 
the thing he didn't have that a lot of the people had that made them successful was a financial partner because Walt Disney did the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. So it was like dreamers went for their dreams with no like logic behind oh, them. I mean, if, if you were to talk to their wives, I mean, that's who you really want to talk to when it comes to these successful, famous men that look like they just, wow, what an amazing thing you've done. I mean, Disney is worth billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars. But if you talk to Lily... She'd say, you know how many nights I was pulling my hair out because our house had been mortgaged once, twice, three times. We were going bankrupt. You know, Roy was the financial guy and he was constantly looking over at Walt and going, are you insane? This is We're pouring all of our money into Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Nobody's going to go watch a movie about this girl and these dwarves that's an animated feature. That's like took you- the risk. It, that's the thing. You take the risk yeah. and... You know, sometimes it doesn't work out, but a lot of the time it does. Yeah, and the thing even with like James Patterson and Stephen King and those guys, because like just listening to Jack Canfield, who's he, he, we go from kind of more horror suspense to um, chicken soup for the soul, but he's the one who, who coined that book and he talks about how many times they were turned away, how many times they failed before they finally hit success. So it's being mm-hmm. able just to finance yourself long enough to finally hit success because very few people just wake up successful. They failed and failed sure. and failed and just kept picking themselves up and going. So, and you can see it in the story of Mark Twain and mm-hmm. a lot of these people. So, you and I in our rabbit holes, maybe we better crawl back out and get back to Mark Twain. <laughs> yes, here. we should. In 1894, Twain, Livy, and Clara set off on a lecture tour to try to get money to throw towards their ever growing debts. Susie and Jean stayed behind in the Hartford home. Susie contracted spinal meningitis and died in the home on August 18, 1896. She was only 24, and her death in the home made it so that Livy could not bear to return to the home. The Clemenses eventually would sell the home in 1903, and it would later serve as a school and then an apartment building and a library. The home was registered as a National Historic Landmark in 1962. The house was extensively renovated and turned into a museum dedicated to the life of Twain. In 2003, the Mark Twain Museum Center was open and features documentaries, exhibits, a great hall, cafe, and research library. Financial hardship almost closed the home in 2008, but it was back in black by 2011 after donations from the state, concerned citizens, and businesses. Attendance is now record-setting, and the home generates millions in tourist dollars. But I think it's fitting that it went into financial trouble to begin with. It was kind of following the same lines. The years following Susie's death turned very dark for Twain, and that darkness was reflected in his writing. Lectures followed suit, with Twain even giving a harshly sarcastic introduction for, of all people, Winston Churchill. Later works were rejected by magazines as they seemed to shed a bad light on Twain. So there was a lot of people who were trying to protect his reputation because some of the stuff that he was writing came across as, as much as people, apple pie, baseball, and Mark Twain, a lot of his writing during this time, anti-American. He was um, going kind of the way of anti-imperialism, which you and I are, I would say we're anti-imperialists too. I don't believe you go into a, a country and take it over and by force and that kind of thing. So a lot of what he was writing at this time would not have made him look very good. So it was almost as if the magazines, not only did they not want to publish that kind of material, but I think they were trying to protect his reputation. There were whispers of Twain turning traitor. The Clemenses lived in New York City from 1900 to 1903 when Livy became ill. Twain took her to Italy, and she died in 1904. 
He returned to New York and then moved back to Connecticut in 1908. Twain's youngest daughter, Jean, died the following year from an epileptic seizure, leaving only Clara, who was recently married. And I believe that Jean was in a bathtub when she had that epileptic seizure, and so she drowned. Hmm. Twain died shortly thereafter on April 21st, 1910, at the age of 74 from a heart attack. He was buried. I wonder if it was a heart attack or a broken heart. I, you know, you can all only imagine children? everybody and his wife is dead now at this time too. So all he had was Clara. And going back to Susie, that was his favorite daughter. She was a protege when it came to writing, and so he thought for sure she was following in his footsteps. So he was really devastated. And obviously, Livy was as well. I mean, it, they were so upset they could never go back to that home in Hartford again. Uh, he was buried at Woodlawn Cemetery in New York. Twain had paid off all his pre-bankruptcy debt, even though he was no longer responsible for the debt before he died. So he was a real stand-up guy because, you know, if you go bankrupt, you don't have to pay that stuff. But he wanted to pay back everything that he owed. So he did. Integrity. So he did die. He was in the black when he died. Twain showcased in his writings a changing world, whether it was via technology, attitudes about slavery, traveling, culture, or observations on history. We're a better world for his gift of the written word. And right there tells us why Disney chose to put him in The American Adventure with Benjamin Franklin. Is that innovative thinking? Because those were both men. So I think that's what they were looking for. And for people who don't know, this is The American Adventure at Epcot. Mm -hmm. And it's an audio animatronic presentation. And it goes through the history of America hitting the highlights. And it's narrated by Benjamin Franklin and Mark Twain. And I'm thinking that the reasons that they were picked were not only was Benjamin Franklin an inventor and an innovator and a founder. He also had a lot of writings and things. And you've got Mark Twain. It's almost like they were the, the two eras that America. That really you know, launched yeah. us into. Because if you think Mark Twain, when you're thinking Mark Twain, you're also thinking Civil War. So you're going from Revolutionary War, Civil War. Those are the two like stamps on America that really defined us. Is there more still existing on this side of the veil in regards to Mark Twain than just his contributions through writing? Are the rumors of hauntings at the Mark Twain home true? Before we discuss the paranormal aspects of this tour, we should touch on the spiritual beliefs of Twain. Earlier, we referred to the death of Twain's younger brother, Henry, aboard a steamship that exploded. What we did not mention is that Twain dreamed about the event before it happened. This prompted him to explore parapsychology, and he became interested in spiritualism. He became an early member of the Society for Psychical Research. Spiritualism was in its heyday in the late 1800s, particularly in America. Eight million people in America and Europe belonged to the religion at that time. It was not weird for members of the Upper Crust Society to host seances in their parlor rooms. And anybody who studied the history of spiritualism, I mean, that's an in-depth study in itself. This is definitely the time when it was in its heyday. This is when Houdini was going around trying to prove that, you know, debunk the stuff they were doing. And a lot of it was bunk. <laughs> a lot of it was just BS and people playing around. And this is when they were taking the ectoplasm photographs and things of that nature. But this is really interesting. This dream that Mark Twain had, not only did he see his brother dying exactly the way he did, but he saw it all the way through to the funeral and the flowers and everything. So it really does make you wonder if he didn't have some kind of a premonition there. Also something else, he was born, Haley's Comet had passed by about a month before he was born. So he would always tell people, hey, I came in with Haley's Comet 
I'm going to go out with Haley's Comet too. And he literally died within months of Haley's Comet's return. So it makes you wonder, did he have some kind of sixth sense? But the conundrum that we're going to get into talking about Mark Twain here is he was very skeptical of that stuff. So even though he experienced it personally, because we've discussed here, you know, that we're open-minded skeptics. And part of the reason why I believe in some of this stuff is because of personal experiences that I've had. For him, it was like he kind of stuck his toe in the water because he'd had the personal experiences, but he, he just really didn't want to believe it. As early as 1866, Twain wrote about spiritualism, calling it a, quote, new and unprospected wildcat religion in an article for the Territorial Enterprise. So this is obviously not something that he was thinking, hey, that's a really cool thing. Wildcat religion. But his interest in this religion grew, particularly after Susie died. The Ouija board comes out in regards to Twain after his death. This is a very interesting story. A 1918 lawsuit was brought by the publishers of Mark Twain's writings, Harper and Brothers, against a publisher named Mitchell Kennerly, who published a book named Jap Heron. The book was written by Emily Grant Hutchins, and she claimed that Mark Twain had dictated the novel to her letter by letter via a Ouija board. The case grew from a simple copyright infringement in regards to Mark Twain's name to a trial on the afterlife. Lawyers wanted to put the issue of immortality into the hands of the Supreme Court. Well, some things never change, huh? Let's rule mortality from the Supreme Court. I mean, is it immortality? Just because the Supreme Court says, uh, no, we decide there's no life after death. Well, yeah, who cares what the Supreme Court says? One way or the other. Like, just, they're the authority on it. Well, it's just interesting that they would take it to the Supreme Court. Yeah. The writing seemed to be above the level of what Miss Hutchins usually put out, but many claim that Jap Heron was not at Twain's level either. So they're like, well, it doesn't seem like she wrote it, but. That's not real great for Mark Twain. Although some people need to understand everything that Mark Twain wrote, as it is with all authors, not all of it's great stuff. And really, when he was writing The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, it took him a long time to write that. And a lot of people feel that the last, I would say, mm, about a fifth or fourth of the book, he wrote it much later. He wrote like the first 400 and something pages all at one time. And he just couldn't seem to finish the book. So he put it aside for several years. And then when he did finish it, a lot of people are like, I, I believe, speaking of a lot of people, Ernest Hemingway, to name drop, when he read it, he said, the book should have ended right here, pretty much where I think Mark Twain had stopped writing it the first time. He's like, the rest of this is just, he didn't call it crap, but that's basically what he meant. It was just, it, it didn't seem to flow. It didn't seem right. So not everything that Mark Twain did was great, but enough people were looking at this Jap Heron and going, I don't think that's Mark Twain's writing or quality either. Now, where I got the story about this lawsuit was from a New York Times article, and we do have a link in the show notes if you would like to read the whole article about this, and then it has links to previous articles too, because this went through several months of, uh, you know, his daughter and the publishers bringing this lawsuit and everything. The case never did go to trial. After it was agreed that Jap Heron would not be distributed, and most of the copies were destroyed, but they do have a copy at the Mark Twain House Museum. Twain is a conundrum when it comes to the afterlife. Many people, including Twain himself, claim that he did not believe in an afterlife. The Mark Twain Museum currently is exhibiting spiritualism, seances, and Sam. The interim curator of the museum, Mallory Howard, says on the website, quote, Mark Twain was fascinated with spiritualism, reveling in debunking seances as a younger reporter in San Francisco, and maintaining skepticism on the subject all his life. But sanctioning his wife's Livy's attempts to seek solace in seances after their daughter's death. 
but the exhibition is broader than that. It covers the gamut of spiritualism, mourning and attitudes towards death in his era and after, and how his attitudes fit into that continuum. We bring the story into the 20th century with an extraordinary collection of objects loaned by the artist Calvin von Crush, and finally into the present century, end quote. And they started that in October. That'd be fascinating to see. Yes, it would. Because honestly, I had no idea that he had any involvement or interest or anything when it came to spiritualism. Isn't it funny when people do go through that kind of grief, how many people mm-hmm. do seek out like Ouija boards or psychics or whatever? We had our friend uh, Wayne. Mm-hmm. How many times did he go to psychics so that he could talk to his partner who had passed away? Mm-hmm. And I always was like, for me personally, I have a hard time believing a lot of that stuff. So I, I always am like, I hope you're not playing with somebody's emotions on mm-hmm. that stuff. And I always feel bad when people are feeling that desperate to talk to that person that you're, you know, you're putting out money to have a medium. And I just, I really don't feel like you're supposed to be playing that way. So would Twain approve? It's hard to say. Twain did write to Reverend J.H. Twitchell, quote, Susie is gone. George is gone. Libby Hammersley, Ned Bunce, Henry Robinson. The friends are passing one by one. Our house where such warm blood and such dear blood flowed so freely is become a cemetery, but not in any repellent sense. Our dead are welcome there. Their life made it beautiful. Their death has hallowed it. We shall have them with us always, and there will be no parting. End quote. So you have a guy who says, I don't know if I believe in the afterlife, but then he writes to a reverend that. Sounds like he believes in something. (laughs) But all their spirits are welcome here. (laughs) The afterlife is active in the Clemenson's beloved home, though. Susie had died in the home, and her manifestation is one of the most reported by visitors and employees of the museum. She's been seen sitting on a round velvet couch in the front entryway. A young woman in a white dress has been seen floating in the hallway. A spirit was witnessed looking out of the upstairs window and even caught on film. Typical cold drafts and flickering lights have been reported as well as female giggling. Susie is not the only female at the home. Many believe her mother, Olivia, resides at the home as well. She's seen wearing black with a black veil. A maid that the family had also seems to have returned in the afterlife to continue working in the home. A woman has been seen by an employee wearing a hoop skirt, but no one is sure which of the women this could have been. Clothing has been tugged, and the laughter of children is heard as well. The billiard room where Twain wrote and spent much of his time reportedly has the smell of cigars in there on occasion, and knocking is heard on the walls. Mark Twain's ghost has not been seen in the house, but supposedly it has been seen walking the hallways of an apartment building in New York on West 10th Street where he once lived. A woman claimed in the 1930s that she came into her apartment and saw a man with wild white hair sitting in a chair looking out the window. When she demanded to know who he was, he told her, quote, My name is Clemens and I got problems here I gotta settle, end quote. Be a little freaky to come home to that. <laughs> yes, indeed. The basement is altogether another story. Reports of experiences in the basement are far from pleasant. A security guard claims that a silver serving tray was thrown at him when he was down there. Several people have reported hearing a growling sound when they're down there. A psychic exploring the basement was overcome with terror and ran from the house. Has something taken up residence here that is possibly demonic? Keep in mind that something could have been opened up with the use of seances and Ouija boards by Livy Clemens, although these were not used in the home. And paranormal investigators sometimes bring along supernatural hitchhikers with them, and this... 
home has been investigated by several paranormal groups. So yeah, that was my first thought when we were looking at that. Is that I wonder for you know if they opened something by by trying to reach people through through the Ouija board. That's the problem because that's the other thing uh, the point I was going to make when you're talking to a psychic. Who are you talking to? <laughs> they might be telling you that it's your loved one, but it could be an imposter as well. Graveyard shift tours are offered by the museum that explore spiritualism and haunting experiences. In 2009, ghost hunters investigated the site for their cable show and reported evidence. Has Samuel Clemens continued his writing in the afterlife? Is the Mark Twain house haunted? That is for you to decide. And we've got pictures of the home and the various rooms up in the show notes as well. This is a gorgeous house, Denise. I would love to go see this someday. Absolutely. So we'll just add that to our little travel list. The Adventures of the History Goes Bump podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And then you can write the book. There we go. (laughs) All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. um, And also not so fun learning some of the, the downsides of his life. I mean, it was definitely a life that had a lot of tragedy. He did see a lot of that. Absolutely. It is when you start searching into people's lives. You know, you see that just so many times somebody who spreads so much light to the world has so much darkness in their own life. And you see it time and time again. And just the people who pass and struggle with depression and all of all of those things. So we're going to kind of touch on tragedy in our next show as well. We're going to be featuring the Aokigara forest in Japan. Going way, way across the ocean. This isn't the pond, though. Yes, and the reason why this is a place of tragedy is the other name for this location is Suicide Forest. So if that gives people an idea of what goes on in this place and why it would be haunted. It's going to be kind of a creepy type of show and um, maybe a little bit troubling, but we'll try to give it a little lighthearted feel as we do that. But I wanted to go do some place in Asia, and so I thought, ah, let's take a dip into Japan, and this apparently seems to be one of the more haunted locations there and one of the more well-known locations. Okay, already on my list. Oh, (laughs) It's actually a cool-looking forest, uh, the way the trees are there and stuff. All right, well, we want to thank you all for joining us for this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this is Denise. Take care now. Bye-bye. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting, and shape shifting, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page. <laughs>